Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Peter Baker and Susan Glasser are two of the most respected journalists in Washington. He is senior White House correspondent for The New York Times. She as the Washington correspondent for The New Yorker. They're also husband and wife and collaborators on a terrific new book, The Man Who Ran Washington, a biography of former Secretary of State James A. Baker, one of the most influential political figures of his time. Jim Baker ran five, count them, five presidential races. So as the clock runs down on campaign 2020, I sat down with Peter Baker, no relation, and Susan Glasser to talk about their work, their book, and the state of play in this most unusual race for the White House. Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, welcome. This is a rare, almost unprecedented edition episode of the Axe Files, because rarely do I have two people at once, but you guys are exceptional in many different ways, uh, including that you're, you're, you're married. You just wrote a book together called The Man Who Ran Washington about James Baker. I'm looking forward to talking about that during the course of this conversation. And you're both incredibly gifted observers of government and politics, uh, uh, Susan Yu at The New Yorker, and Peter, the apparently White House bureau chief in perpetuity. (laughs) They won't let me out. They won't let me out. (laughs) I asked Susan if he's ever going to get paroled here. You guys thought you got away (laughs) to Jerusalem before this administration and Trump got elected. It must have felt like the Godfather, where just when you thought you were getting out, they dragged you back in. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> At this point, we're yeah. no longer making uh, post-election plans uh, ever uh, right. <laughs> in advance of the election. So speaking of the election, because I want to take advantage of uh, both of your insights, uh, we had these dueling town halls last night because the president refused to do a, uh, uh, a virtual debate. Um, and so he had his on NBC. Joe Biden has, had his on ABC. It was interesting, really. And, and Susan, you wrote about this in The New Yorker. Tell me what you saw. Well, I think it was sort of summed up by, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers, which was the, I guess she meant it as an insult, but clearly yeah. it's not an insult uh, slung at Joe Biden by one of Trump's advisors. And then the crazy uncle, uh, which was this incredible exchange between Savannah Guthrie, the NBC moderator, and Donald Trump, in which he was uh, defending his retweeting of an insane conspiracy theory involving President Obama and uh, claiming that Osama bin Laden wasn't actually killed after all, and in the course of which Savannah Guthrie says, well, you're not 
some crazy uncle. You know, you're you're the president of the United States. So to me, I would shorthand those two town halls as the story of Mr. Rogers versus the crazy uncle. Uh, and the one was a high decibel barroom brawl, flip the channel. And, you know, there's sort of like this very civilized, you know, policy want conversation about tax rates. Soothing. soothing. Yeah. Oddly soothing. <laughs> My very fine researcher, uh, Miriam Annenberg, is from Pittsburgh. And she was, uh, she reminded me that uh, people really like the, <laughs> Mr. Rogers, who is, of course, from Pittsburgh. But people really like Mr. Rogers. Who doesn't uh, like Mr. Rogers? To, uh, Mercedes uh, Schlapp doesn't like Mr. Rogers. Donald Trump probably thought he was a loser. These elections, they're so interesting to me, having been involved in so many as a, a journalist and, of course, as a strategist, because they do become comparative processes. And the president always defines the process because people judge the president and then they judge even when a president's leaving and they tend to seek the, the remedy to whatever they find deficient in the uh, in the incumbent. Peter, Mr. Rogers is a pretty is a pretty strong antithesis to I mean, the most apt antithesis, perhaps, to what we've seen from Donald Trump. Absolutely. Yeah. And I always use your quote. I always cite it to you that, you know, voters are looking for a remedy, not a replica. Uh, it does normally you normally apply it at the end of an eight year two term president. But it may it feels like the last four years have been like eight years or even longer. So maybe so it may apply to voters this year. And if they are looking for a change, they're not going to find somebody more different in some ways than Joe Biden, certainly temperamentally. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's, you know, the, the replica remedy thing. And you're right. It, it, it was meant to apply to succession races. But but Trump is so uh, luminescent. He's so dominant that uh, he almost insists that it be all about him. And uh, that uh, those those qualities, you know, when you say, well, what are people trying to uh, remedy? And, you know, honestly, in uh, I know. Peter, you're, you're famously uh, objective. You make a, a point of that. But uh, in Trump's case, it's kind of that he's a jerk. It's kind of that he's not a nice person, that, you know, lack of decency, lack of character. And, you know, Joe Biden, uh, you know, who I served with and who I admire, you know, he, he has his strengths and he has his weaknesses. But one obvious strength is empathy, decency, character. Those were kind of on display last night in the Mr. Rogers town hall. Uh, and I really think that, as I think you guys, that's what's been propelling this race uh, all along, more than any yeah. particular issue. I think that's right. I think it is about personality and temperament and uh, quality of character and so forth, almost more than any particular issue. Although obviously the coronavirus hangs over this pretty Palpably. But I think you're, you know, Trump is now trying to trade off that, right? He's now trying to make the argument, okay, fine, you may not like me, you may not think I'm very nice, but I get stuff done. And why isn't that better than this weak need, you know, over the hill guy who's just gonna be pushed around by the radical left? That's the argument he's making. It's an argument, I think, that is working with his supporters, it's working with his base. But during this election, much like the last four years, we haven't seen him try to expand that coalition very much. I don't know that that's reaching out to the middle, right? I mean, there was a time, you know, David, when you and I and Susan covered politics, when candidates tried to reach out beyond 
the people they came with. They try to build on their supporters. And he's never tried that. It's always been about maximizing the support of the people that brought him to the dance in the first place. And so this is a real test of whether that works because he's not he's not reaching out, I think, to others. The the jerk factor, I think, even Trump seems to recognize that uh, that he's no Mr. Nice Guy is actually not a good selling point, even among Republicans, never mind reaching out to Democrats. And, you know, there was this, this sort of unintended moment of, you know, self-awareness in interview he gave to Rush Limbaugh a week ago in which he actually said, well, I may lose. And as you know, Trump rarely likes to admit that. He usually says he's winning in states where he's not winning. But he said, I, I may lose and uh, because they don't think I'm nice. And clearly somebody has, you know, sort of briefed him on this. And I think it was set the stage for his kind of remarkable moment at one of his rallies this week in which he he says, suburban women, if you're listening, you know, please like me, please, please. And of course, it was totally offensive. And, you know, then his performance at the town hall last night suggested, of course, why they don't like him. And I listened in, I'm wary of, you know, turning anecdote into to data here, but listened in a number of times over the last six months to some of these uh, focus groups that uh, the Republican voters against Trump had has been convening of Republican women who, who voted for Trump in 2016. And I listened to one the night after the vice presidential debate. And these women, first of all, there were nine of them, not a single one was going to vote for Trump, uh, for sure, again. Uh, so these, again, are all Republican 2016 Trump voters. But it wasn't even that so much as the hated Trump, even the ones who were still considering voting for him. And it was a personality driven and behavior driven. They found him reprehensible, offensive, uh, uh, disgusting, even uh, rude. Uh, overbearing. These were the, you know, Republican women and his voters. His voters. And for them, the, the coronavirus did mark a break point in a way that I think isn't always reflected in the polls or the data because, it, in fact, the remarkable stability of Trump's overall approval rating is, is the main thing we take away, you know, from the last few years. That's such an important point. I, I guess my feeling. Uh, Peter, you're right that the I think the coronavirus has been a disaster for him as well as the country. And his his you know, I did a, a uh, podcast the other day with John Bolton, who talked about Trump's belief that he can impose his version of events on anything, that he can impose his will on anything. And you can't spin a pandemic. Uh, and that's what he's learned. But for his voters, you know, I've been privy to a lot of focus groups myself and what you heard from these swing voters, people who maybe voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, up until this year was, yes, he's kind of a jerk, but things are going pretty well. And they were sort of arguing that that's the price of admission with Trump. Now the quality, his personal qualities, they seem connected to bad results, bad developments, that his personality has driven his decision-making around this coronavirus in ways that suddenly have kind of have have the cost has become evident to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think that uh, you're right. I think until March anyway, people were willing to say my 401k is doing well. My uncle has a job. My kids, you know, uh, are getting educated and they look have, like they have a good job market when they get out. And I don't like this guy. Maybe he's rude. He's 
he's a boorish personality, but why rock the boat? You can't make that argument in October because obviously the boat uh, is pretty well rocked at this point. The, the economy that he was bragging on, which he inherited from Obama, but kept going, is no longer what it once was. And there's not a real assurance that it will get back to where it, it, it had been unless they can first conquer the virus. And it doesn't seem like he is interested in doing that. He keeps telling us that the virus is basically done. He said just hours before he himself tested positive, he said the epidemic is, is, uh, is almost over. And I think that a lot of Americans understand that to get the economy going, you have to get the virus under control. And that's something that he hasn't uh, uh, subscribed to. So even if they might give, they might have more faith in him to rebuild the economy, which that's what polls show, than Biden, they're not convinced, I think, that he will get us to the point where you can begin to rebuild the economy. Even this week, and as late as last night in the town hall, he's talked about us, we're turning the corner, uh, the virus is going to disappear. And it is, it is kind of astonishing because the news today is that we are reaching July levels of in, uh, infection and hospitalizations are, are are climbing rapidly and and so people are you know this is they're they're seeing a rea- they're living one reality and he's speaking to another it seems to me that he is accelerating the dynamic that has created problems for him so let me ask you this Peter um, I spoke to a, a Republican friend who's close to Trump and I asked what what is his mindset and he said well you know he he just he just sees the silver linings he sees the crowds he sees and he you know he's encouraged by that you talk to people around the white house what is their level of um i mean is there anybody like is there a reality check around there yeah i'd say the mix of uh, despondency and denial right that that on the one hand there are those who see what's coming or at least think they see what's coming and it's not a pretty picture. The numbers are really hard to argue with at this point. And then there are those who are still believing that Trump will, you know, has some sort of magic bullet the way he did four years ago, and that something will come along, uh, and he will surprise everybody with this, uh, uh, you know, miraculous come from behind victory all over again. And it, you know, what percentage is despondency? Which which percentage is denial? I'm not sure. Maybe could be little... anybody who seemed who can just sit down with them and say, uh, you know what, uh, we're, we're we're headed for a rock here, and you got to take a sharp turn. But what's the sharp what's the sharp turn he could take at this point, right? I mean, I think the problem is he's made his bed and he and he has to play it out, right? That's a mixing metaphors, but he has to play out the hand he has because I don't think anybody's going to suddenly believe it if he pivots in some other direction. So his view, I think, is maximize. Uh, the strengths he does have and and uh, and bull on forward. But um, we're so close to the election. He is so well known. People's views of this guy have been so fixed for so long. Right. I mean, there's no presidency. Actually, you know this better than I, but no, no presidency we've ever seen where the numbers have been as stable and, and, and roughly consistent for four years. Yeah, no, this guy's approval rating has been embedded in the mid low to mid 40s for four years. And for when he, whether he has a good day or a bad day, I mean, he seemed to make be making a slight move earlier in the year before all of this happened after impeachment. But uh, basically, it it has not moved. And you know, the history of these things is you don't get very many more votes than your percentage uh, on job approval. So that's got to be 
really dismaying. Susan, on the question of what he could do, I mean, you, t- you talk to Republicans and Democrats, as I do, uh, the, what he could do uh, or what he could have done is look at the look at the polling and think through commonsensically his situation and make this about who is best equipped to re- re- restore the economy once this virus is over and really hammer the economic arguments. That's what a lot of Republicans have been hoping he would do. Um, and yet we've seen him go through a full debate. Now we've seen a town hall meeting. We have one more debate coming up on uh, Thursday, um, in which I bet he doesn't do it again. Um, he just, uh, you know, you, 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 uh, he keeps spitting out the bit here. You know, I think that is, David, the biggest contrast uh, between Trump of this year and Trump of four years ago is the the sort of utter lack of a program or, you know, he's not selling anything except himself and his own grievance. And I think that that really is different. If you, if you look at the Trump of four years ago, he was, in addition to being younger and, you know, a, a little bit less looking like he was going to keel over, he... Um, you know, he had a message. It was still misleading and, and all those things. But, it, you know, it was pretty coherent what he was selling, uh, a sort of outsider, blow up the system, take on, uh, you know, these hordes of illegal immigrants, uh, you know, do a much better job than those other losers had done uh, in the Obama administration and negotiating deals, right? Like he was talking about a program for the country as, as caricaturish as it was. Now, He's talking about, you know, conspiracy theories that even if you pay close attention, you can't follow them and that all spin out from his sense of how poorly treated he's been in his own personal grievance and asking people to invest in that sense of grievance and bad luck that he carries over. He's always been about grievance, but four years ago he was exploiting other people's grievances and today he's indulging his own. We saw it last night, you know, I mean, he, just him openly complaining about how unfairly he's been treated by the by the IRS. And yes, the bin Laden theory. And well, and on the economy, to your point, you know, he it's amazing to me that he didn't find a way to 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 produce some kind of economic stimulus package in this election season for the voters. I mean, you know, first of all, most politicians, Democrats and Republicans tend to like to give money to voters uh, right before they vote. Uh, and it just seemed like the sort of the malpractice that comes from the political malpractice that comes from really being completely indifferent to the idea of governing. Right. And, uh, you know, he sought to use the powers of the executive branch in like the sense of taking the Justice Department to go after his enemies perceived uh, or not, but he hasn't realized, you know, that the tools that were available to him uh, of actually governing and actually dealing with the crisis were probably the best way to get reelected anyways. Governing is a is a long term proposition and he's producing daily reality shows. He's going for quick, quick scores. If he had behaved, as you suggest, a, it wouldn't be him. But secondly, you know, if he behaved as as many of the governors have, if he had taken this virus seriously from the beginning, if he had done the things that a president normally would do, he might be in a different position right now. If he had proven that he had the capacity to do that, if he had responded to the nation's 
travails in a way that didn't seem utterly political. Uh, he might be in a different position right now. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Susan, you and I had a chance to sit down some time back. We talked about your, your your journey. I just want to catch up, and yours are intertwined. So don't don't go don't 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 leave on me here. You know, you're you're kind of a unique character because you've covered the last four presidencies, and very few uh, White House. The White House beat is 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 a rotating beat, and very few people stay there uh, over overlapping administrations as as you have. So it's given you. Uh, perspective, but I want to just talk for a couple of minutes about how you happened to get there, and your your kind of path to journalism. Because you're you 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 don't come from a journalism family. You don't come from a political family. How how is it that you became you got on this path? <laughs> uh, I took a wrong turn. Uh, look, I was um, I grew up in the Washington area. So Washington has always been of interest to me. We got the Washington Star and the Washington Post at home when I was a kid. What was it about them that interested you? What What was it? I just it was just the world. What was going on around us? It was just endlessly fascinating. You know, whether it be, you know, the presidency here in Washington or just uh, news from around the world, uh, Russia or the Middle East. Uh, you know, it was just the newspaper was a window. Uh, outside of your own existence, to uh, to a larger to a larger world, and I, I just love them. So, did you I, say? I, did you know at that time? You know, this is what I'd like to do. Yeah, I was lucky. You know, a lot of kids aren't. I was lucky as early as third grade. I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I was editor of my class paper, and in, in, in third grade, uh, my third grade teacher a few years back, who I hadn't been in touch with for years, got in touch with me and sent me a copy of the uh, of the newspaper that I made up in the third grade, which is lovely to have. And so, yeah, I was always Did you lucky. scour it to, to see if you had betrayed any sense of political leanings or anything that might suggest bias? In third grade, I was pretty neutral, I think. Yeah, I was pretty good at that. <laughs> but it's always been a passion. You went on to uh, Oberlin College, and then you did a brief stint at the Washington Times. Uh, I did. In, in Washington. Uh, and then you moved over to the Post. Washington Times, I don't know what the ownership, I can't remember what the ownership was back in the mid-80s, but was it as ideological as it is now? Yeah, yeah, it was. And it was in, for me, it was interesting. I went to two years at Oakland College. I didn't finish. Very liberal school, great school. I loved it. I got a lot out of it. And then I went to work for one of the most conservative newspapers in the country for Why two years. Why did you leave Oberlin? It was a mutual decision uh, between me and the uh, <laughs> and the people who gave out the grades. Um, we we all agreed that I needed a little time off, and um, you know, any day now. Were you now, doing journalism <laughs> while you were there? Yeah, I was working for the school paper, probably a little too much. Uh, I probably should have devoted a little more time. It. Uh, I don't recommend the path, but it worked out. So um, the Times was the Washington Times is a great place to start. Uh, I was on the Metro desk, so it wasn't as ideological. There wasn't you know as much political uh, stuff that was just covering school boards and covering cops and, and covering, you know, Mayor Barry and, and, this, and the investigations and all this stuff. 
and I covered the Virginia uh, legislature. And so I felt like having two years at a very liberal college and two years at a very conservative newspaper kind of cured me of, of, uh, of ideology to some extent. I, I hope that that would make me a little bit more um, willing to see both sides and not, not to I just, I just want to interject this question I should have asked, which is how did your folks feel when you traded your education at Oberlin for your education at the Washington Times? Yeah. Uh, you know what? They were honestly surprisingly accepting. Um, I think that they thought that I would go back and that I would eventually get my act together. And <laughs> I never did, I guess. But once, you know, once you're starting out, I mean, you know this, right? You were a, a reporter. Once you're doing it, why would you want to do anything else? And it was just a great, great adventure. I, I always say that I went to the University of Chicago and was educated at the Chicago Tribune. Exactly. 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 So I went from the Times to the Washington Post, and I also on Metro covering Virginia, and uh, and loved it. Loved every minute of it. I was so lucky. So lucky. Covered local government, then state government. I covered Doug Wilder as governor of Virginia, who was just a character and a half. You you remember him? Uh, and then in 1996, my friend uh, John Harris was on the White House beat for the Washington Post, and I uh, I was asked to come play. I was asked actually to go to the Miami bureau. Uh, in 1996. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And they said, but would you mind coming to Washington for, uh, I was living in Richmond at the time, what, come to Washington and fill in for a little bit on the White House beat uh, until the election. I'm like, okay, sure, that sounds like fun. And 24 years later, I'm basically doing the same thing. <laughs> I never made it to Miami. <laughs> yeah, you came to the White House beat at a very, uh, what turned out to be a very freighted time. On the one hand, the Clinton presidency was soaring because the economy was booming. A lot was getting done. On the other hand, uh, there was Monica Lewinsky. Uh, talk a little bit about that because you were integrally involved in that story. And here we bring uh, we will bring uh, Susan back into the tale because this is where you guys uh, you guys uh, became a joint venture. Yeah, we like to say we're the one good thing that came out of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. So we can uh, we'll get into that. Yeah. So I was covering the White House beat and we uh, and my we got wind of Newsweek working on the story that got spiked. And the Drudge Report has started putting out a couple, you know, hinting things about an affair with the president uh, and my colleagues, uh, Sue Schmidt and Tony Losey and I wrote the first story uh, breaking the news that Ken Starr was investigating President Clinton for obstruction of justice and uh, and perjury in the Monica Lewinsky matter. And it was off to the races for 13 months. It was a heck of a story. And in the process, we had a new editor who just arrived at the paper that time as the deputy national editor in charge of investigative news. So the editor said, well, you should be reporting to her because you're doing all this investigating uh, right now, Clinton. I'm saying, okay, sure. And it was Susan Glasser. And you guys, it turns out, lived on the same block and didn't know each other? <laughs> <laughs> You've done your research. We did. Yes. We didn't know that for weeks, right? We <laughs> we discovered that by accident. We did, actually. It was courtesy of the, the, the famous Al Kamen yeah. uh, that we found out about it. We both lived on Swan Street in Washington, D.C., on the same block, a few hundred yards from each other. And uh, there was a bumper sticker on a car uh, about the Star investigation. It was a funny bumper sticker of some kind. And I had seen it and I had sort of said note to self, you know, I should tell Al Kamen that for his column, that in the loop column. And he also was Peter's seatmate in the Washington Post newsroom. I went over to him the next morning because it was already in the paper, in his column. And I said, Kamen, that's my block. 
you know, I was going to tell you about it. Where did you find out about that? Because I was going to tell you that's right where I live. And he said, what do you mean that's your block? That's Baker's block. That's where he lives. <laughs> so, you know, he, we, we see him as the, you know, the spiritual godfather of this situation, uh, <laughs> along with Monica Lewinsky and, and Ken Starr. You guys went off to Moscow together. Uh, you got married. You went off to Moscow as uh, bureau chiefs for the post. Tell me about that experience. And especially, uh, I'm interested in how you guys look at Donald Trump through the prism of your experience covering Vladimir Putin, because I know, Peter, uh, you said uh, that Putin's, Putin's takeover of the independent television network there was integral to his rise to power. So Putin understood how media and communications uh, was central to control. And it seems this, you know, it, it seems as if Donald Trump has tried to take a few notes there. Well, look, yeah, I, uh, we got to Moscow just basically when Putin was taking over. And actually, our friends on the, the, the who had been on the Russia beat all felt sorry for us because they thought it was going to be pretty boring, right? No, no Yeltsin, no tanks in the streets, no, you know, no revolution. And it actually turned out to be, I think, in some ways, the four most pivotal years in modern Russia history since the end of the Cold War, because suddenly it was all turning back. Suddenly Putin was taking advantage of the chaos of the 90s as the Russians saw it and, and using that to discredit democracy. And he had license in effect from the people because they saw democracy as equivalent to chaos. They saw it as crony capitalism. They saw it as uh, corruption. They saw it as losing their life savings. And here this guy comes along with strong men, this mujik, this, this Russian uh, macho figure, even though he's kind of small. Um, and he promised them stability and they were desperate for stability. And they allowed him, therefore, to take over the, the, the different uh, elements of power in Russian society at that point, independent television. Uh, the, he eliminated the election of governors. He basically turned the parliament into a pocket legislature for himself. He pushed out of the country businessmen who were who were in any way willing to stand up to him. And so that four years that we were there, I thought was a real lesson in how a democracy, or at least a quasi-proto beginning of a democracy, could go backwards. And I think that is uh, a useful template for right now to understand how things can go awry if, if a society lets them. The other thing I thought we learned from that was how much resentment there was on the part of Putin and a lot of the people around him toward the United States. And so a lot of what you see happening in the last few years here seems exactly what they want. They want us to tear each other apart. They want us to doubt our democracy. They want us to, to lose faith in our system. And he wants that for a couple reasons. One, to prove to Russians that, we're no, that we in the West are no better than they, so they shouldn't demand of him anything that the United States has because look how bad America is. And two, because it puts us back on our heels. And I think that he has uh, looked at these last four years, Putin has, and thought, you know, this is working out pretty well from him, from his perspective. Absolutely. That resentment of Putin stemmed from a belief that the U.S., after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, had uh, essentially uh, lorded over uh, Russia rather than uh, worked with Russia to help rebuild their country. Is that a fair a fair sermon. Yeah. No, that's right. It's a very it's a, it's almost paranoid, but it is a, a very strong uh, belief in, on the part of Putin and a lot of Russians that Americans were deliberately, uh, you know, impoverishing the new Russia that emerged from the Soviet Union, that we were not, in fact, looking to them to become strong and healthy, but that we wanted them to uh, 
to be corrupt and, and, and destitute. And that is unfair and unfortunate, uh, but that was a perception and he played off of that. And he, I think he both represents that and he is the manifestation of that. Susan, what, what, uh, what do you see in Putin uh, that, uh, first of all, what do you make of the relationship between Trump and Putin? And uh, not just how Trump fashions his own politics, but also his su- submissiveness uh, to Putin, which is, is you know, obvious and evident. It's, it, I think it's beyond dispute that, you know, you'll hear his supporters say, well, we've been very tough on Russia, but a lot of that was mandated by Congress, not uh, you know, over the objections of the president. But you never hear him challenge Putin in any way. No, that's right. Isn't that amazing that we've now made it almost an entire presidential term and we have yet to really find out, you know, what 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 is driving this relationship and Trump's admiration for Putin and 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 other strong men, right? So, you know, sort of the best case scenario argument of a Trump defender is, well, he admires and sucks up to all dictators <laughs> or many dictators, so it's not specific to Putin versus those who uh, take the view that he has a specific uh, uh, kind of submissiveness, as you put it, to Putin. So it is, it's definitely true that uh, he has an overall predilection and affinity uh, for authoritarians that's not limited to Vladimir Putin. And he talks in similar ways about Xi Jinping or uh, Erdogan in Turkey or uh, Mohammed al Sisi uh, from uh, Egypt who visited him in the Oval Office and he said he's my favorite dictator uh, or even you know, this weird, quote unquote, love affair with Kim Jong-un, I do think he has a specific admiration for Putin and and a certain almost caricature's notion of strength, uh, you know, whether and how that intersects with his longstanding business interests and obsession with getting uh, a more robust business presence in, in Moscow, I think remains to this day an unexplained mystery. And I think we've learned a little bit more in the last, uh, you know, half a year from some of these accounts that have emerged from inside the the Mueller investigation, that that one of the reasons we don't know the answer to it is that the Mueller investigation never really looked into this aspect uh, of Trump's uh, uh, financial background. I never sought the records that might have answered some of these questions. So, uh, you know, I don't know uh, if some of the ongoing investigation in New York State or you know after Trump's time in office, whenever that is. Uh, you know, eventually we'll have answers, but it's 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 striking to me that it's taken this long. But in terms of the sort of the dictators or the wannabe dictators handbook, I think Peter's right to to spotlight that the, this experience in Moscow for for us these four years uh, were really oddly relevant and disturbingly relevant to the process of trying to figure out how to cover a pres an American president as unique as Donald Trump. And, you know, the, the systemic kind of assault on in, potential institutions of power that could challenge you uh, was the thing that we saw Putin doing very methodically uh, when we were there. And of course, that's a playbook that's been used subsequently in a number of places. Turkey is one example. Hungary uh, with Viktor Orban is another example. You know, and the going a- after uh, rivals and the assault on institutions I think was something that, uh, you know, has been oddly relevant 
to watching what's unfolding in Trump's Washington, even if Trump himself is a very different character, or Putin's very disciplined, Trump is not, you know, so it's just, it's weird. Let me take this in a slight, uh, slightly different direction here in, in the interest of time. You came back to the U.S. in 2005. I find this uh, extraordinary. You wrote, you wrote your first book together then uh, about, uh, about Russia. You also, you were pregnant, Susan. I want you to tell me if this is a true story that you were close to delivering when you had the last two chapters of the book to finish, and you guys frantically pulled an all-nighter to finish those chapters so that, and you did, and then you went into labor hours later, is that? Oh, not hours later, no, no, no. I came upstairs and said, okay, I just hit the send button on those two chapters. She says, good, I'm having contractions, literally. But David, I'll tell you the real truth, which is that two things. One, uh, that actually happened, although I had never had a child before, so I didn't really know what to make of it. And I thought, this can't be happening because it's too good of a story. And we'll be telling it the rest of our life that we had a book and a baby in the same day. So I actually wasn't sure that these contractions were for real, number one. Number two... So she went to the store. What Peter usually doesn't say is that actually what I did was frantically uh, drive to Bye Bye Baby in Rockville because I didn't have a single thing for this baby because we'd been busy finishing our book. So that is a true the story. Good thing, the good thing is Bye Bye Baby has a uh, five minutes or less contractions express line. <laughs> that part is not true. But I did drive directly from Bye Bye Baby to Georgetown Hospital where our son was delivered. <laughs> We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. What's it like to write a book together? Because I wrote a book. I found writing a book very stressful. (laughs) Nobody, my wife sent me off to uh, a remote location for the last three months of that because she did not want to be anywhere near me. And the poor young man who was my researcher didn't want to be near me much either, but he was stuck with me. Uh, But so, I mean, to me, that seems like a really dangerous path to share that stress together. But obviously you guys have worked that through. Well, look, you know, first of all, your book was terrific and really uh, 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 sorry for your wife and your researcher, but the final product was worth it. Um, In our case, you're right. I mean, look, this was the foundation of our relationship from the beginning. We were professional partners before we became husband and wife. And so, you know, it was always our great luck to, to share both professional and personal interests. And I think that, you know, early on, of course, she was my editor when we met. So we established the pecking order from the beginning, which I think is a very healthy thing for a marriage. So there's never any question about that. And, uh, you know, <laughs> she's shaking her head and rolling her eyes. Yeah, but um, look, you know, I'm writing a book. I mean, the great. we don't have the same voice, but by the time we're done with it, passing it back and forth and rewriting and editing and so forth, I think we actually do kind of merge our voices. Some of our friends say, oh, I can tell which chapter, the Susan chapter or Peter chapter. I think by the end, actually, they're pretty consistent because we we are we are so um, linked up. We are just so, you know, uh, uh, much of a tandem at this point. And I think that, you know, again, it's different. She's a columnist for The New Yorker, so her New Yorker columns are different than I would write them because she has voice and, and, and she's allowed to have more of an opinion. I'm a newspaper reporter, so we have a different role. But by the books, 
uh, I think we are able to sort of merge and, and, and bring them into a single Let, let me ask voice. that about your voice, because I joked about it earlier, but you famously said you don't vote, you don't. And that's still true? Yeah. 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 And it's not I get that a lot of people think that's a dumb thing. And I I respect that opinion because I get it from a lot of people up close. To it, it, it seems excessive, but yes, <laughs> it's not because anything wrong with voting as a reporter. I think reporters can vote and be perfectly fair. I just found that out if I was in the White House covering the person who was in front of me every day, it was easier to have never made up my mind, even in a small way in the privacy of the of the voting booth, that this person is right or this person is wrong. You know, that, that gives you a rooting interest, however small, however minor, that you want to validate your opinion, uh, that this person was the best person for the job or not the right person for the job. And so it's just easier for me to do that. I would argue I would argue that I, I perform my citizenship through the journalism and that there's a value to the to neutral journalism or journalism that is as neutral as it could possibly be. And we're all human. So there's no such thing as objectivity. I get that. But I think that I perform a duty as a citizen by hopefully by giving readers the best, most disinterested, independent reports that I can. Let me just really quickly, and, the, and because I want to get to Baker, the other Baker, the real Baker. The, uh, to, can you, um, you, you covered President Clinton. We, we mentioned that you covered President Bush and you also covered the wars uh, while you were working in Moscow. Uh, and then you covered uh, President Obama before these uh, before President Trump. Tell me, uh, just give me a, a thumbnail sense of each president you covered and what distinguished them and, uh, you know, for, for better for better and worse or better or worse. You know, it's really interesting, uh, David. I, 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 each of them is very different people, obviously, um, but they're, they share certain traits and that aren't necessarily defined by ideology or partisanship. I mean, I think that President Clinton and President Bush are more alike in the sense that they are both extroverts and that they both like people a lot and they both get a charge out of that part of their job. I, I would think you would agree that President Obama is more of an introvert than an extrovert. He's not his, you know, he's not as, as uh, uh, you know, overtly outgoing in the way that Clinton and Bush are. He's campaigning, more, I think, more than people think. But he also needed a little bit of a rest from that, right, to kind of recharge his batteries a little it's bit. pretty serious about you know, he, yeah. he was absorbed in the governance part. There's no doubt about it. Right. And I think where he and Clinton are like, for instance, is that both of them love to dip down deep into an issue. They were both maybe sometimes to a fault, right? Maybe sometimes it made it harder to actually come up with a decision than they might like. But they really enjoyed the details of the policy. They were wonks. They were uh, they enjoyed a seminar approach to to policymaking. Uh, that wasn't really Bush's style. Bush had more of a CEO, MBA version of things. Um so in other words, I think that the, what you know you found or I found in, in covering those three presidents is that the that party was less of a defining trait for how a president was going to be president than than their personality and their history and their attitude and their approach to, to life. And I thought by the time that President Obama left office that I understood the presidency. And I thought by that point I understood the White House. And I thought that there were more similarities in, up in different White Houses, even as they seem different, because they had the same rough uh, set of problems and the same rough set of limited solutions and that they were all generally operating within the 40-yard lines of each other, Bush a little more over here, Clinton a little more over here, Obama someplace. But that they were, you know, I would hear Obama say things that Bush had said. You know, it would be like echoes. And like, I don't think Obama necessarily recognized that or certainly didn't mean to, but he would come to the same conclusions. I, we asked... Uh, 
uh, Obama, I think, uh, um, well, you may have told the story, but, but he talks about the limited, you know, how you discover as president that you can't actually do everything you want to do, right? That you actually are not as powerful as you sort of think you are, that in fact, it, there are limits to being president. And that was something all three of them discovered in different ways, I think. And then Trump comes along and upends everything. Everything I thought I understood about how a president operates, everything I understood about how a White House operates was thrown out the window. Let me just interrupt and ask you guys about this, because this was a joint thing. You did go off to Jerusalem. You now at the New York Times, you did go off to Jerusalem. You were going to be the Jerusalem bureau chief. You were for a period of months and then you came back. Was that a hard decision? It was an unpleasant decision, but it wasn't a hard decision. In other words, we were there for, I would say, five months total. And after the election in 2016, the editors called. We had a conversation about whether to come back, and they asked me to come back. And I, and I, it's not a hard decision in the sense that that I would have hated being on the sidelines through a presidency as interesting and newsworthy and important as this last one has been, this last four years has been. And I would have not enjoyed being on the sidelines. It was it was unpleasant in the sense that we were looking forward to something new. We were looking forward to spending some time in the Middle East and understanding the place. We loved living in Jerusalem. Uh, and so we had to give that up in that sense. But, but look, uh, was, I'm not sorry. Yeah. It was a no-brainer, truthfully, David, for, for anyone who knows Peter, as you do, and also for the Times. I have the, the email messages still from that night because Peter and our son were in Jerusalem, and I was here in Washington uh, as the editor of Politico, and I was supposed to literally finish that assignment and move on Saturday. And so they were going to wake up early in the morning to see Jerusalem time, the results of the election. And I have the emails and to Peter and by relatively early in the evening, you know, U.S. time, I first sent him an email saying, uh, by the way, Trump is going to win. Uh, And next message, uh, you know, they're going to want you to come back uh, from Israel. Have you thought about whether that's something that you want to do? Because. You know, we were excited. And no, I hadn't thought about it for heaven's sake. We were excited <laughs> to be foreign correspondents again. It's the appropriate question because why pack if you don't have to, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. She still ended up coming. Yeah, she still ended up coming. But then we turned around and came back. Just the last question on this. What is the psychic cost of covering Donald Trump? I mean, I'm speaking now as a former journalist. And I've, I, you yeah. know, uh, but to be constantly on call to, you know, everything, you, you never know when the next kind of extraordinary earthquake is going to happen. And right. uh, your job is particularly difficult because the earthquake happens and then in a matter of hours, you have to try and provide some perspective on it. Right. Uh, and I, I just, it seems to me, I mean, I know a bunch of your colleagues, obviously, and everybody seems worn out yes. in some way by yes. the experience. I- I think, A, it's exhausting. It is exhausting because he can get up early in the morning and start tweeting out things that would be a news, right? And stay up late and do it. It's like, you know, when he tweeted out that he had tested positive the coronavirus, it was 1 a.m. You know, so there's there's no sense that the day was ever really over with him. And because, you know, like with President Bush or Obama or Clinton, I, you know, you kind of knew what might happen. You, you, you knew the, 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 the edges of any way what was possible. Uh, and here you never know that anything can happen. And the other thing I would say that's different, and that's by the way exciting as a journalist. I, you know, I'm not complaining about that because obviously unpredictability is the is the coin of the realm for journalists, right? 
Well, the other thing I think that is is um, different is that, you know, look, again, Clinton, Bush, Obama, all of them got mad at us. All of you guys got mad at us. I've, I've been yelled at by the best. I was yelled at by the Clinton people and the Obama people and the Bush people. But there's something different about that and having the president of the United States get up there and say that you're the enemy of people. And there's something different about that and than having the president get up and say everything, everything is fake news. And that takes a toll, I think, because it's it's not a, you know, we can have a disagreement. Actually, you can disagree with my story. You can say I got it wrong. You can you can think that I'm unfair and we can have that conversation. Right. And the next day we're going to get up and we're going to talk again and we'll have another conversation and another one. And that's a professional, normal adversarial relationship between the press and the White House. Normal, healthy in a lot of ways. It's not healthy right now. What's going on now is not healthy because it's tearing at the fabric of public faith in our institutions and, and the institutions include the press. And I think a president, any president should have an interest in the press having credibility and being a legitimate part of our society. And this one doesn't. So, uh, Susan, in reading your book, The Man Who Ran Washington, about James Baker, it strikes me, first of all, uh, and I said this earlier, I, I, I had a different podcast earlier with Mark Salter, who just published a book about John McCain. And I said, it's almost as if the book should be read through sepia tones. That it just <laughs> seems so much a different time. And you feel that way about Baker, too. And I had the chance to sit down with him. We did a TV show together, which was was really fun to do. But he, you know, in certain ways, he is what Donald Trump ran against. He in, in so many ways. Uh, tell me about first of all, tell me about why you guys decided to write this book and just give me your top line on Jim Baker and why he deserved to have a very good book written about him. Well, you know, David, it's funny because we started this book back in the Obama era, uh, seven years gestation uh, for this one. <laughs> of course, a large reason for that long gestation period is the rise of Donald Trump and, and the news sure. cycle going crazy. But, you know, even then we were drawn to it for two reasons. One, because Jim Baker just on his own is a hell of a consequential figure in uh, modern American history. And, you know, it... Both Democrats and Republicans, you know, have been fascinated, in fact, by his mastery of Washington and his ability to move and shape the levers of power. It was Tom Donilon, one of your colleagues from the Obama administration, who, you know, called him the most powerful unelected official uh, since the end of World War II. And so, you know, when we realized that there had been no big independent biography of Jim Baker, Whereas, you know, even many lesser secretaries of state or other figures have them, you know, Peter and I saw that as, as a really interesting project in and of itself. But I think even back in the Obama era, the other reason we wanted to do the book that gets more to your question was we saw as the opportunity to write a big book about Washington uh, at a time that was so definitively different from the present moment. And even, you know, before Trump, right, the seeds of this uh dysfunction and gridlock and, uh, you know, essentially that grinding to a halt of the, the machinery of uh, government and the interaction between uh, the different branches of government was already, I think, becoming apparent. The sclerotic nature that, you know, year after year, Congress failing to, to pass the appropriations bills, the basic, you know, foundation of, you know, how, how they're supposed to exercise their powers. I mean, this was already apparent. And uh, of course, it also was just a different geopolitical moment as well. I mean, you know, Peter and I are, 
you know, arguably sort of children of 1989, right? This is right when, you know, I'm graduating from college, we're starting our professional lives as the Berlin Wall is falling and the, the Cold War is ending, this extremely optimistic moment in American history that also turns out to be kind of an outlier, right? You know, like we, we what we saw as the sort of triumph of democracy and, and freedom actually sort of turned out to be this, this exception uh, to the rule of the international order. So the opportunity just to go back and look at that. So we really thought this is a way to tell the story of Washington from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War in a way that, you know, here and there's this character. Trump, of course, has has given that a whole new resonance and and meaning and, and poignancy. I mean, to your point about it's not a book of nostalgia. It is not a celebration of Jim Baker and power. It's a study of it. But I do think it's also a powerful contrast uh, to this moment that we find ourselves in. Yeah, Baker famously brokered uh, some really historic deals on tax reform, on Social Security, uh, and uh, re- uh, very successfully worked both uh, both sides of the aisle. I mean, part of it was he had this iconic conservative figure, Ronald Reagan, who who had the authority, who had the political wherewithal to bless these deals in a way to bring his people along. And Tip O'Neill, a partner who was willing to, and others, Dan Rostenkowski, uh, who was uh, uh, from my town, was uh, very much involved on that tax reform uh, effort. Uh, But um, so the times were different. He had that opportunity, but he was very, he was very, very deft, but he also represented an establishment that that Trump and his populist populism uh, detested. I mean, you know, Baker brokered free trade agreements and Baker believed in global institutions. And George H.W. Bush, who was his govern, who was his partner in life and in government, very much, re- uh, you know, stood for globalism uh, in a way that. Uh, that uh, uh, obviously Trump has has run against. So Trump ran against the order that Baker worked so hard to establish. So that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Trump is the unbaker in in, in every possible way, both ideologically uh, and temperamentally. And I think that um, it is a repudiation to some extent of the modern of the modern Republican Party that the Bush Reagan Baker era represented. One that. Trump told Americans was out for the elites and was out for uh, big business and uh, was, you know, sipping from the trough of that famous swamp in, in Washington. Never mind, of course, that he himself is favored business and, and, and you know, uh, is not exactly gotten rid of corruption, <laughs> let's say, in Washington. But you're right. And, and that's one of the reasons why this book we felt was pretty salient, because Baker's story is the, a definable era that is uh, that is now over. And um, Trump represents the ultimate repudiation of that in some ways. I bet you that Baker would be just as happy if half the book disappeared, the half that was <laughs> about Jim Baker, who was also one of the one of the extraordinary political talents of his time. I mean, he, you know, he I think he was involved in five presidential races. Uh, he uh and, and and was great at it, including some bare knuckle races. The the you know perhaps the greatest 
or most effective negative campaign ever run was the campaign that was run against Michael Dukakis in 1988 with Willie Horton. And you were, and when you interviewed him for your TV show, that was the one time it seemed like you really kind of got under his skin a little bit, a little defensive about it, right? The fact is that Baker and that campaign did plant some seeds of, of the modern Republican Party. Willie Horton was, was a, an invocation of dark, darker forces, uh, in political forces that Trump has been much more overt uh, about. Uh, and I got the sense that Baker, you know, posing in front of the flag factory and, uh, you know, and, and accusing uh, uh, Dukakis of being soft on, on patriot, you know, all of that. Uh, and of course, Roger Ailes was the media consultant uh, for George H.W. Bush uh, in that campaign. But it, se- it seems to me that Baker saw that as a, and I'm not excusing any of that, nor am I denying that hard fought politics is, is a staple of America and so on, all of that. But it, uh, it seems to me that Baker saw that as a necessary evil to, uh, to achieve uh, power and then how you use power uh, was how you should be measured. You know, he does have some parentage of of the current political climate. I think that's a fair assessment, David. And really, you know, he, both he and the first George Bush saw politics as sort of a grubby business. Uh, and in fact, that's why for much of his career in Washington, the story is one of him yearning to break free from this label of being a political handler and a political operative and fixer and, you know, wanting to be seen as a a principal in Washington terms, wanting to be seen as a a statesman. And, uh, you know, the other thing to understand about Baker uh, is that one of the reasons he was so good at power in both electoral politics and, you know, international diplomacy politics is because he was ruthlessly unsentimental in looking at a situation and understanding what was required. And, uh, if you looked at George Herbert Walker Bush in the summer of 1988, uh, after two terms of Reagan and an, a, a fair amount of fatigue with both Reagan and Republicans, Michael Dukakis had a 17-point lead. And Baker was ruthlessly unsentimental. Now, he wasn't Lee Atwater. He wasn't the one who came up with, uh, you know, the details of uh, this withering assault. But he absolutely signed off on it. And they took a mild-mannered technocrat from Massachusetts uh, you know, and and turned him into, you know, a criminal-loving, flag-hating, you know, enemy of the state. Uh, it was an extremely ruthless campaign. But the difference between that Jim Baker uh, is that the first thing he did after that 1988 election was to sit down with Jim Wright, the Democratic Speaker of the House, and to make a deal to end the long-running feud in Washington over U.S. support for the proxy wars in Central America, which was probably the most divisive foreign policy issue and and political issue in uh, the 1980s and led to the Iran-Contra investigation, all sorts of things. So that was the very first thing he did. Uh, And he and Bush uh, were eager and, and saw it as a requirement of their job to work with Democrats and to craft an approach toward the end of the Cold War that had buy-in across the political spectrum. And so that's the difference from today, when you cannot conceive of that. We're speaking on the one-year anniversary of the last time that the President of the United States spoke with the Speaker of the House. Yeah. 
No, it's uh, it really is. It's so much is extraordinary, but that that says uh, volumes. Look, Jim Baker's career is historic in many ways. His career in diplomacy, his career in politics, his career in government are all really to be studied. And you guys have done a wonderful. Uh, work here that's both readable and gripping. Whether you are interested in politics uh, and how politics has evolved, and if you just want a study of a tremendously talented political actor or government and diplomacy, this is a this is a must-read book. The man who ran Washington, uh, Susan Glasser, Peter Baker. I appreciate you guys. You are two of the truly great journalists we have. I'm grateful for this book, and I'm grateful for what you do every day to illuminate us. So thank you for uh, for that, and thanks thanks for the time. David, thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. A lot of fun. Good to be with thank you. Thank you so much, David. We're your, uh, your biggest fans. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.